church in those Bibles this morning is page 456. And we'll be reading Psalm 19. And before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are holy and great. Heavenly Father, we need to be formed more into the likeness of your Son. And we pray this morning as we turn our attention to the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, uh, that, you would, uh, that you would teach us this morning, that you would mold our hearts, and that you would open our, open our ears. We pray this morning that you would uh, just pour out your Holy Spirit upon Pastor Adam and help him to preach your word in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, it is my daughter's 16th birthday today. 16. That's right back. And I'm pretty sure she's standing next to a birthday boy, too, right? That was yesterday. Yeah, so our soundboard is birthdayed out here today. Pretty awesome. 16, man. Getting old. You always wanted an old pastor, didn't you? No. Uh Uh-oh. All right. Well, you can join me in John chapter 1 if you would like today. You know, we come here every week together because we believe that God speaks to us in the words of this book. And of course, we don't need a preacher in order to understand the words of this book. God can speak directly to us through the Bible. But all over the world throughout history, uh, we understand that God helps us and speaks to us and ministers to us through the spiritual gifts of other people in the church. No man is an island. That's not a Bible verse, but it's a biblical concept. We're not designed to go out there out on our own, but we are designed to need each other and each other's spiritual gifts. So normally what happens is a congregation will gather a tithe, gather a little bit of money together, 
so that a, a person with a giftedness in preaching and teaching can spend extra time during that week studying the Bible and then bring that on Sunday morning, distill it in some way uh, for all of us because everybody throughout the week can read the Bible, but then we depend on each other's spiritual gifts. And so all of that is based on this idea that God is speaking to us in this book. Um, and as we saw last week, uh, the best blessings in life come when we understand the words of this book and when we delight in the words of this book. Uh, now, part of this comes from the idea that this book is the word of God. It's not just a book. It's not like any other book, but it is the word of God. And I think that phrase needs a little bit of explanation. What is the word of God? What do we mean by the word of God? In one sense, we mean that the Word of God is the Bible, or the Bible is the Word of God. But you know that the New Testament also refers to Jesus Christ as the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, you see there at the beginning of the passage here this morning, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Word... Uh, in the, is the Bible, and the Word is Jesus Christ. So how does that work, and what does that mean? And I believe that understanding that little phrase, the Word of God, can help us to understand why we understand the Bible and how to understand the Bible and what we're supposed to do uh, after we've studied the Bible. So this is a little mini-series that we're doing, Overlapping Advent, and uh, the design of this is to increase our desire for and our love for the Word of God. And I also hope that this little mini-series will be intensely practical. In the middle of these sermons, we'll be introducing uh, uh, specific skills that can help each individual Christian study the Bible at home. So today we're going to look at something called major Bible themes, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. But again, if you're in John chapter 1, where Jesus is called the Word of God. Now this word, word normally means dialogue from one person to another. So there's a specific meaning there. It doesn't just mean word like we would sometimes use it in English uh, where there's a word on this page behind. Uh, but usually the word word means I have a word for you. There's a message from a speaker to a receiver, and that's usually how the word is used. So this passage is showing us here in John chapter 1. This is called John's prologue that goes through verse 18. The prologue of John is telling us that Jesus Christ is God's communication to us. It's, it's almost like God's dialogue uh, to mankind. So again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now that Word is called a He. And so we know that it's not just some principle or some idea or some thing. Obviously, we're talking about a person. And we realize that this person is Jesus down in verse 14, where it says, and the word became flesh. That's where we get the idea of incarnation. We take, uh, it's a taking on of flesh. The word took on flesh, became incarnate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we know that the word in verse 1 is Jesus Christ by bumping down there to verse 14. The word is Jesus. So what does John mean when he refers to Jesus as the word? When he refers to the word as Jesus, what does this mean? And how do we relate this to the idea that this book is also the word? And are there maybe some implications for us in how we study 
and how we respond to that study. Now, in the original Greek, the word for word is logos. And logos was a huge word in John's day. It was usually uh, defined as the organizing principle of all things. It would be used as sort of a philosophical term that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. It's a set of truths and values that explain everything. And for Aristotle, logos made logic possible. Logic is that skill of understanding and explaining an argument. Uh, And the only way that you can understand something that's true and explain something that's true is if there's actually something out there that's true. And that is the logos, the organizing principle behind all things. And it makes logic possible. Now, John starts his gospel by telling us something very important about the logos. First of all, we're told that it is revealed by God. We don't just learn the truth through reason and education, but by God's revelation. God wants us to understand the Logos, and he is active in revealing the organizing principle behind all things. He does this, of course, in the Bible. Many, many words here that reveal God's truth. Truths about God, truths about us, and how we are to relate to him. But even more powerfully, God reveals the Logos as a person. Jesus Christ is the living, breathing display of Logos. As the organizing principle behind all things, Jesus Christ must be discovered, understood, and then conformed to. Christ said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's a remarkable claim and a remarkable evangelistic tool here that John is using with the word logos to take the most important philosophical questions of the Greek world, the world which Christ was born into and the church, the early church went out into to take the most important philosophical questions like what is the meaning of life and how can I know truth and so on and to answer it with a man, with Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the organizing principle behind all things. And this is possible because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is communication from God to us because he is God. And remember this first verse uh, of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John starts his gospel with the same phrase, In the beginning was the word. And he does that on purpose. He is connecting Jesus Christ to creation words like, Let there be light. Those Those same powerful words that said, Let there be light. Those same powerful words took on flesh and was born to the Virgin Mary. John also connects Jesus Christ to Exodus words, not just creation words, Genesis 1.1, but he also connects Jesus Christ to Exodus words. In John chapter 8, verse 57, the Jews said to Jesus, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They were ready to stone Jesus for blasphemy, not because his grammar was bad and they were irritated with his bad grammar, but because when he said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he's referring back to what God said from the burning bush to Moses at that important moment of redemptive history. He used that phrase on purpose. Jesus used that phrase on purpose to connect himself to Moses and the burning bush. So Jesus embodies the creative, powerful, redemptive word of God which we see at creation, we see during the Exodus, and we see then embodied in the life and ministry, particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now remember, this word, word, just the strict dictionary definition of it means dialogue from one to another. Jesus is the dialogue of God to us. And he is that dialogue of God because he is God. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing about Jesus. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And the Nicene Creed says this about Jesus, that Jesus is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, meaning the same exact nature with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. And so Jesus Christ is the word of God because Jesus Christ is God. He is the communication of God to us, the walking, breathing, living example of the word. Now, God wants us to know him, and he wants us to know the most important truths in the universe, these truths about himself and how we are designed to live. And God reveals those truths using words. He reveals himself particularly through words. And the Bible is a book filled with God's words. And Jesus is the living, breathing incarnation of those words. Now, if that's true, if God really is wanting to dialogue with us and not just us, not just as a people, not just on a Sunday morning when we all gather. But if God wants to communicate directly to you today in a particular moment in time then the best way to hear and to understand is to study the word, study the word of God, study the Bible and specifically study what the Bible, both Old and New Testament say about Jesus Christ, particularly what the Old Testament and New Testament has to say about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear that God wants to dialogue with us, that's very exciting. If you're a new Christian or if you haven't become a Christian yet, you might be thinking, wow, this is pretty cool that God actually wants to talk to me in that book. But then you open it, all right? You open open it to any random place or you begin reading and so on. And what you find is a very intimidating book because these are God's thoughts. These are not our thoughts. And we find a very intimidating book. The Bible is very big. This edition that I have right here has 1,300 pages. The Bible is very big. The Bible is also written a very long time ago. It's ancient. This is ancient. And it was written to a specific people in history, a history that we may not know. The Bible also contains specific genres of literature. Some of these genres we may not know how to interpret. Uh, we may not. Uh, we may be familiar with poetry, roses are red, violets are blue, and that type of thing, but not the sort of person that sits around reading Wordsworth. And so, if God communicates in poetry, and yet I might say to myself, I'm not really a poetry type of person. Well, then, how are we going to hear from God if uh, if God communicates to uh, to us through ancient literature? But I'm not really a literature kind of person. Then I've got a high bar here sud- suddenly that I need to clear if I'm going to hear. From God, But we have to remember that this is how God is communicated. This is God's dialogue, and we want to hear and to understand. And so we push through that intimidation factor in order to learn some skills for correct Bible interpretation. So as I said, as we go through this sermon series, uh, in the middle of each sermon, we're going to toss out some practical helps for understanding what God is communicating in the Bible. And we're doing this not because 
you're a bad boy if you don't read your Bible very often. We're not talking about that. What we do in each one of these sermons is talking about the glory of God's word, the, the amazingness of God's word. Here we're talking about the word of God, that God wants to dialogue with us, and he's revealed himself in words, both in the Bible and in his son, the living, breathing incarnation of the word. And if that is the case, then how do we study it? How do we interpret it accurately? This morning, I'd like to tell you about major Bible themes. Uh, major Bible themes. We'll put all of these practical helps together uh, at the end of the sermon series, but you can take some notes here this morning. Major Bible themes are very important. God communicates clearly to us, and he does that in Scripture by repeating the very most important things that he wants us to know. We do this, too, when we're trying to communicate. We want to say something to our children. We want to say something to people that we work with or whatever. We may repeat the most important things. Now, just so long as you heard me, I just wanted to remind you, you know, in that sort of a thing. So we repeat the most important things that he wants us to know. For example, God tells us over and over that he hates and punishes sin. He reminds us that he is a heroic redeemer. He wants us repeatedly. He warns us repeatedly over and over to turn away from idols. So as people who love God and want to understand God, we need to understand the major theology or the themes of the Bible. Now, there could be hundreds of different categories of theology. God communicates many things, and there are lots of parts of Scripture that are very difficult to interpret. Some sections, sentences, paragraphs, that we may not have any idea what is happening in that paragraph. We're not saying that the Bible can be entirely understood because these are, after all, God's thoughts. But... Because he has created us, and because he is all-powerful, and because he wants to dialogue, he knows exactly how to communicate clearly the very most important things that we need to know, which is most of the Bible. If we were to boil it down, we could distill it into a number of major Bible themes. Now, there's a number of reasons to know the major Bible themes. When we study a small section of Bible, just a little paragraph or just a little sentence of the Bible, uh, we usually find ideas there that are repeated in other parts of the Bible. And if we can make those connections, we call them cross-references. If I can make connections to other sections of Scripture, what happens is I have a fuller picture, a fuller understanding of what God means in that one individual sentence. The basic theology of the Bible then regulates how we understand individual parts. So major Bible themes are very important. I'm sorry, I faked you out there, Michael, but you can go ahead and put them up there now. We're going to go through 10 major Bible themes. And the first five are God's sovereignty, God hates and punishes sin, grace, which is defined as undeserved kindness, obedience and faith, substitutionary atonement. We'll get to the next five in a moment. And if we can understand these 10 major Bible themes, that'll get us a long way in understanding what God is saying in individual sentences. For example, with God's sovereignty, what we mean by this is not a particular uh, bent on interpreting the scripture or uh, Arminianism or Calvinism or something like that. What we mean here that God is sovereign is that God rules over all creation. He really does. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He can do whatever he wants to do. God is a good king. We also see another major Bible theme. God hates and punishes sin. Much of the Bible tells us that God is holy. Holiness means perfect and without sin. God is holy, and he is set apart from ordinary common things. He's special, and since he's holy, he hates sin. 
God hates sin, and all humans have inherited original sin from Adam and Eve, and God is right to punish that sin. As R.C. Sproul calls it, cosmic treason. We have all committed cosmic treason against God. God hates and punishes sin. We also see all through the Bible, many times repeated, and so it is a major Bible theme that we need to know, and that is the idea of grace. God is gracious, and he calls us to be gracious. Grace is undeserved kindness. God loves rebels. God loves sinners, and he sent Jesus Christ to die in the place of sinners who repent and believe. And he suffered much, and he did not fight back, and he is gracious to us. And he asks us to follow his example by graciously loving other people. So grace is a very important theme that we see all through the Bible. We need to know as much as we can about how God understands grace that makes a huge impact in the way that we interpret individual sections of the Bible and a huge impact in the way that we interact with God and each other. Another major Bible theme is obedience and faith. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God made us, and therefore, as his workmanship, he owns us, and he has the authority to tell us how to live. He requires us to be righteous. He tells us to believe in him, to follow him, to worship him, to trust him. Another major Bible theme is substitutionary atonement. Pastor Mike was talking about this earlier in the service, that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. All of us have sinners as sinners deserve punishment from God, which we would define as eternal conscious punishment in hell, that God loves us and yet he hates that sin and he must punish that sin. But because he loves us, he sent Jesus Christ to die in the place of sinners as a substitution so that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross works for or counts for my death. And he is then resurrected to newness of life three days later, and I get the benefits of both of those things, both his death and his life. Substitutionary atonement is, a, is an important concept in the Old Testament as we see the animal sacrifice system all through. And of course, in the New Testament where Jesus Christ fulfills all the meaning of the Old Testament law. Another major Bible theme is this idea of covenant. Covenant. Covenant is a promise And we see God making promises to his children. He is a promise-making God. And that leads to another major, major Bible theme, and that's the idea of hope. The idea of hope. Hope is trusting God to fulfill his promises. Uh, David, King David in the Psalms, talks about it as waiting, waiting for God with confidence that he will come back and he will redeem. Even when we suffer, Christians are never without hope. Another major Bible theme is the idea of kingdom, that God, as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, is a nation builder. He's a people builder, but it occurs in a spiritual realm in the New Testament as we are brought into the church and become his people. So what are the promises of God that we hope in as God's kingdom, inside God's kingdom? We begin to see how these major themes relate to each other. Another major Bible theme is the Spirit of God. We see God's spirit talked about all the way through the Bible as well. As the spirit of God convicts us of sin, as the spirit of God helps us to understand the word, as the spirit of God gives us certain gifts that we can use to bless people inside the kingdom of God. And finally, number 10, this idea of idolatry. Another major Bible theme that God insists on being loved above all earthly treasures and feared above all other powers. 
In the Old Testament, the Jews often fell into idolatry by trusting in false gods uh, to provide for them, to protect for them. All people struggle with that same temptation, perhaps not to bow down to a little uh, figurine, but the same idea that we need something more than God in order to make us happy and safe. But the Bible tells us that God is sufficient, that God is supreme, that God is all-satisfying, and he calls us to turn away from idols. So these are 10 major Bible themes that every Christian needs to know. God's sovereignty, God hates and punishes sin, grace, obedience and faith, substitutionary atonement, covenant, hope, kingdom, the spirit of God, and idolatry. Now let's say that I would like to learn these. I want to interpret the Bible better. I want to hear what God is telling me in his word, and I'm convinced that I need to grow in my basic theology. I'd like to know these major Bible themes, and you could add many more to this list if you wanted to. So what are some ways to learn the major Bible themes? And I'm going to suggest two things, but there are a lot of others that you can do. One is to work with a cross-reference resource or a uh, concordance. I have one here. This is uh, from the church's library. This is uh, the Crossway Comprehensive Concordance for the Holy Bible. The way that a concordance works, it's kind of like the back of many of your Bibles. You can see a word like love or atonement or uh, mercy uh, or Israel or different words like this. And you can see places in the Bible where that word shows up. Well, this is like a really thick version of that that you see in the back of your Bible. You can look up any word uh, here. So I've got one here on uh, leopard. So you can see the, the six verses in the Bible where the word leper show, leopard shows up. And uh, actually, leper is right after that too. So if you're curious about that, you can look up leopard uh, and leper in the same Bible study. I'm not sure why you would do that, but... Uh, So this contains every word of the Bible, with the exception of words like and or than and a and things like that, because those words are removed, and these would be all the main words of the Bible. So if you wanted to know as much as you can know about mercy, what does God have to say about mercy all through the Bible, where you could look up mercy in a concordance, and you could read all the different verses that come from that, which is a wonderful thing to do during your Bible study. There's another thing called Knave's Topical Bible, and I have an ancient version of it uh, here from the church's library, but you can buy a newer edition as well. And uh, another book that works like this is The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, and now there is a new Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. The way that this works is somebody has gone through the concordance and picked out the most important ones. So I find that to be really, really helpful. I mostly work now... Uh, with the treasury of scripture knowledge or something here like knaves. And so if you wanted to look up mercy, you might have hundreds and hundreds of verses in the concordance that show up with mercy, but maybe only 25 or 30 of them that show up in something like the treasury of scripture knowledge or knaves topical Bible. It's a wonderful way to study a subject. Now, just to give you an example, uh, a computer piece of computer software or even computer internet site can work in much the same way that a book does. And so uh, many of you might just download an app and be able to use it in the same way. And that works, and that's probably the main way that I use it now. But I still like the physical book. And that's because growing up, we didn't have computers back when I was growing up. And um, I remember uh, my college roommate, his name was Drew, and he was just a neat guy. So we'd be laying there in bed at night talking about some theological debate, and I can still remember some of the silly things that we talked about at that time. 
uh, because we didn't know very much about theology, so we had all kinds of strange questions and strange ideas. And so we'd middle of the night and think, there's a verse in the Bible somewhere that says such and such. And so we'd get up, you know, and the lights would suddenly come on and we'd be squinting and we'd be looking through the concordance in order to find where is that verse that says something about something, you know, where you say that kind of thing. There were so many times where Drew and I would get up in the middle of the night uh, and either with a flashlight or a little overhead uh, desk light, we'd be looking through the concordance. And those are really special memories uh, that I have in studying the Bible with Drew. And I would just recommend that everybody have some kind of concordance, either a favorite piece of Bible software or an app on your phone or the actual book so that you can crack that thing open and you can find verses when God puts them into your mind, but you can't quite remember, gosh, did that come from Hebrews or did it come from Deuteronomy? You can spend a lot of time looking for it unless you have a concordance. And then for Bible study, you're using that treasury of scripture knowledge or the knaves topical. You can check these both out from the library before you decide to purchase them because these are expensive resources, but they're important resources for a Christian to have. Now, another thing, I said I'd give you two examples here. One is cross-references with concordances. But another way to learn the major Bible themes is from theology books or from CDs or uh, sermons. There's all kinds of podcasts and things like this that you can listen to now. Cornerstone has a wonderful library now. We've spent thousands of dollars uh, on that library over the course of the last 10 or 11 years, exchanged out a lot of the books so that what's there is uh, hopefully relevant and, and, and helpful to you. And a lot of it works as those kind of reference-type works where you can look up words or you, can, you come to a paragraph of Scripture. I don't know what that means, so you'll be able to find a commentary in the Cornerstone Library that can help you understand what scholars and pastors have said about that paragraph throughout history. Another good piece of... Uh, of, uh, of a theology book you might have is called Packer's Concise Theology. It was written by J.I. Packer, little tiny paperback. So it's not an intimidating thing, and it's not even an expensive thing. I think you can get it off of Amazon for 8 or $10. Packer's Concise Theology. And what that does is takes major Bible themes, except he'll probably have 50 of them rather than 10, and he'll define them in about a page, which is really helpful when you have one of the best brains of the 20th century, J.I. Packer, and, uh, and he concisely explains a really big subject, like let's say baptism or something like justification. What do these words mean? And he'll give you just a page or two definition of that. And for a more lengthy definition, there's Grudem's Systematic Theology. We also have that in the church library and also in the church bookstore, Grudem's Systematic Theology. It looks intimidating. It's not designed to read it cover to cover unless you're a total theology nerd. Uh, But it's one of those things to make sure you understand how the table of contents works and what's in there so that when a weird question comes up in your small group or you're talking to some kids or something and how do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Whoa, how do I explain that? And you can read 10 pages of definition on that. There are also websites like Ligonier's website. They have all kinds of online classes, journals, web articles, DesiringGod.org also has a lot of good resources, and you can find many others. Be careful about the Internet, though, because you can find all kinds of wackiness on there and be led into areas that just really aren't that important, which is why we're talking about major Bible themes. You could spend a lifetime 
all worried about some very narrow area of Scripture that's based on one or two weird verses of the Bible and it could keep you awake at night. Don't let that happen to you. Focus on the most important stuff. God has repeated the most important stuff. And so let's focus on that stuff and allow that to create the kind of hope and joy within us that God intends his people to have. Now, a couple of practical pieces of advice. You could spend 10 weeks on the major Bible themes. You could also spend 10 months on the major Bible themes. Let's say that you decide, gosh, I would like to know more about those things to make sure that I'm interpreting the Bible accurately and understanding what God has to say to me in his word. So I'm going to spend a whole week looking at verses about God's sovereignty, using the treasury of scripture knowledge, using some online sermons in order to understand that better. And then the next week or the next month, you move on to the next major Bible theme. I'd encourage you to use a journal in order to record and summarize what you're learning uh, so that uh, in years uh, in the future, you can go back to that and remember what you learned without having to relearn it. And you'll find that an amazing thing will happen if you do this kind of a study. Your understanding of small verses in the Bible will suddenly come alive with deep meaning because you will see connections with all kinds of other Bible ideas. So this is one more good skill for interpreting the Word of God. Know your basic theology. You don't need to get a Ph.D., and you don't need to be a theology nerd. But, but if God is communicating to us in his word, he's repeating the most important things. We need to know what those things are. We need to be able to say, okay, so what I hear you saying is, and be able to repeat that back in some kind of summary form. That's just a respectful way of dialoguing with someone, especially a, an authority figure. So let's return to this idea that God wants to dialogue with us. We learn this from the phrase, word of God. He's given us words written in the scriptures and embodied in Jesus Christ. And I want to say one more thing about the word before we finish here this morning, and that is that it is living and active. The word of God is living and active. Let's say that this was dead. Let's say that the Bible was just a book like any other book, inanimate words on the page, and God could have communicated that way. Uh, he could have been very real and existed in, uh, in another realm that we can interact with spiritually and gave, given us just a dead book like any other book. And those inanimate words would have been just like any other religious text. We could learn from it, ethics and doctrine and origin stories and so on. And that would have some impact on our lives. But the word of God is not dead. It is living and active, which means when we study the Bible... God is speaking to us in that moment. Now, that's an amazing thing. Now, I've collected love letters from my wife over the years, and I have some from even before we were married, and I have one that's pasted on the side of my, side of my desk. I love love letters from my wife, but those are a record of something that was felt and expressed a long time ago. Uh, so if I'm writing a love letter to Libby now, it's going to be very different. I know her better than I used to. My love for her is much more mature, hopefully, uh, which wouldn't be hard. Uh, and then also uh, impacted by all kinds of years of experiences and so on. And so what I'm saying to her now is very different from what I said to her 20 years ago. Similar with ancient literature. I love reading Homer. I love talking about the stories of Homer and so on with, uh, with people. And, you know, you can learn things from Homer, of course, because he was a great writer and he talks about the human experience. Uh, but Homer is dead, and he was dead a long time ago. 
Uh, No one, when I'm reading Homer, no one is communicating directly to me. Bible words are alive currently, and they are active. And so that through the Holy Spirit, when I'm reading a sentence or a paragraph, and particularly when I am studying a sentence or paragraph or book of the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, God is speaking directly to me in that specific moment. It is part of God's ongoing dialogue with humanity. That's amazing. And we develop a real relationship with the triune God when we read the Bible. I can't have any relationship, any real relationship with Charlotte Bronte or Ernest Hemingway or whatever. But the author of this book and its central character, Jesus Christ, is one I can know and love and speak back to in prayer as he is speaking to me through these words. But there's more. There's more here to this phrase, the word of God. There are more implications to this phrase, the word of God. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so we hear God's word by studying the entire Bible and what it tells us about Christ who embodied these words. That's incredible that God speaks, but it is also incredible that he wants us to also embody these words. Have you ever thought about that? At Christmas time during Advent, we've got our Advent candles out this morning and we're remembering that Jesus Christ came. He came incarnate. He took on flesh. Have you ever thought about the fact that the word is intended to take on your flesh as well. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Our job is to study these words, to understand them, to conform to them, to let them live in us. Jesus is the word made flesh, the living, breathing incarnation of words, and that same word is designed to dwell in us richly. C.S. Lewis wrote, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. The reason that Lewis wrote that is because the Bible isn't a dead textbook filled with laws and stories. It is communication from God to us in specific moments of time. And it builds a relationship with a real author who wants dialogue with us. And he shows us what the word looks like incarnate by sending Jesus Christ. He put flesh on the word and then he says, now you do that. That's exactly what he's looking for in us. Not simply dialogue, which in and of itself is amazing that God wants to communicate with us that the creator of the universe wants to communicate to us as a people, as a gathered people, and as individuals. That is amazing, but it is also amazing that our lives are intended to be animated by this word so that we can continue God's dialogue here in a fallen world. We've got to see ourselves as instruments of God's creation designed to embody God's word and then to go out in it bringing that word. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the word doesn't just show us the difference between right and wrong. It's not just a dead book. It does show us the difference between right and wrong, but it's so much more. It doesn't just give us little stories that we need to understand so we can memorize the trivia of the Bible and be good little boys and girls and and, and so on, be able to raise our hand in Sunday school. The word is designed to get in us and to live in us, and then to go out into the world with the love of Christ. 
And so we embody the word in so many different ways. When we hug a friend who's in tears, when we speak forgiveness to someone, when we're working hard to provide for our families in so many different ways, we are living out the kind of life that God would have us live. I'd like to close with this section from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel gives us a powerful picture of what the word of God looks like embodied in a people. This is about a paragraph, and listen to this from Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord of God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What an awesome picture of what the word of God is intended to do, to become part of our lives and by the Holy Spirit of God. Be, be lived out in our lives. Jesus Christ is the word of God, the word that created life out of darkness, the word that brought order out of primordial chaos, the word of a communicating God to a fallen world. Since these are the very words of God himself, authoritative, glorious, powerful, and alive, they're worthy of study. They're worthy of hard study. But not just study as an end in itself, but so that it becomes the joy of our heart as we listen to God speaking to us in specific moments and as we get to know him better and speak back to him so that we become a light in the darkness until he returns. Let's close in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for sending the word. I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of your word so that we might be the kind of people that you've called us to be until you return. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Come ye, oh come ye to bear